This is America's Web Radio. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of the latest media reports regarding research into the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and also to better inform the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of almost 25 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to this edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for initial airing on June 1st, 2016. Hope you had a happy and safe Memorial Day weekend. You know, I always mention in the intro, one of my goals for the show is to help you improve relationships. Well, I'll start off tonight's podcast with a very interesting article about specific health problems that can result from conflicts with your spouse or significant other, depending on what particular argument style that you have. Very interesting stuff. This is right at the heart of what I find so fascinating about the mind and the brain, the connections between mood and emotions and what happens to us physically. It turns out that a couple's study ties anger to heart problems and stonewalling to back pain. So if you tend to get more angry, you're going to have heart trouble. If you tend to just stonewall in arguments, you're going to wind up with back pain. Let's uh, go into more detail. If you rage with frustration during a marital or couple's spat, watch your blood pressure. If you keep a stiff upper lip, watch your back. New research from the University of California at Berkeley and also Northwestern University based on how couples behave during conflicts, suggests outbursts of anger predict cardiovascular problems. Conversely, shutting down emotionally or stonewalling during conflict raises the risk of musculoskeletal ailments such as bad back or stiff muscles. The findings reveal a new level of precision and how emotions are linked to health, and how our behaviors over time can predict the development of negative health outcomes. The study, published on May the 26th in the journal Emotion, is based on 20 years of data. It controlled for such factors as age, education level, amount of exercise, smoking status, alcohol use, and caffeine consumption. Overall, the link between emotions and health outcomes was most pronounced for husbands 
but some of the key correlations were also found in wives. It did not take the researchers long to guess which spouses would develop ailments down the road based on how they reacted to disagreements. They looked at marital conflict conversations that lasted just 15 minutes and could predict the development of health problems over 20 years for husbands based on the emotional behaviors that they showed during these 15 minutes. The findings could spur hot-headed people to consider such interventions as anger management, we could only hope, while people who withdraw during conflict might benefit from resisting the impulse to bottle up their emotions. Conflict happens in every marriage, but people deal with it in different ways. Some of us explode with anger. Some of us shut down. This study shows that these different emotional behaviors can predict the development of different health problems in the long run. Participants in the study are part of a cohort of 156 middle-aged and older heterosexual couples in the San Francisco Bay Area whose relationships researchers have tracked since 1989. The surviving spouses who participate in the study are now in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Each five years, the couples were videotaped in a laboratory setting as they discussed events in their lives in areas of disagreement and enjoyment. Their interactions were rated by expert behavioral coders for a wide range of emotions and behaviors based on facial expressions, body language, and tone of voice. In addition, the spouses completed a battery of questionnaires that included a detailed assessment of specific health problems. In this latest study, the researchers focused on the health consequences of anger and an emotion-suppressing behavior they refer to as stonewalling. The study also looked at sadness and fear as predictors of these health outcomes, <clears throat> and those emotions are anger and stonewalling. That's the ones that are the particular emotions expressed in a relationship that predict vulnerability to particular health problems. To track displays of anger, researchers monitored the videotaped conversations for such behaviors as lips pressed together, knitted brows, voices raised or lowered beyond their normal tone, and tight jaws. To identify the stonewalling behavior, they looked for what researchers refer to as away behavior, which includes facial stiffness, rigid neck muscles, and little or no eye contact. That data was then linked to health symptoms measured every five years over a 20-year span. The spouses who were observed during their conversations to fly off the handle more easily were at greater risk of developing chest pain, high blood pressure, 
and other cardiovascular problems over time. Alternately, those who stonewalled by barely speaking and avoiding eye contact were more likely to develop backaches, stiff necks, or joints and general muscle tension. For years, we've known that negative emotions are associated with negative health outcomes. But this study dug deeper to find what specific emotions are linked to specific health problems. This is one of the many ways that our emotions provide a window for glimpsing important qualities of our future lives. Now, to be sure, researchers are not advocating that if you're a stonewaller, you all of a sudden take to flying off the handle, uh, nor would they want someone flying off the handle to completely stuff their emotions, wind up stonewalling and giving themselves, as I said, backaches, stiff necks or stiff joints and muscle tension. Uh, however, it is important to do a better job moderating how you display your emotions when those inevitable conflicts come up in order to avoid these health consequences. Uh, again, I think it's a fascinating look at the effects of emotions on the human body and the fact that the researchers were able to observe these couples' behavior and easily and successfully predict what types of health problems they would develop years later just by observing 15 minutes of interactions. Uh, that's, that's just fascinating in my opinion. Again, showing the wonderful, elegant uh, manner in how you can demonstrate connections between the mind, the brain, and the body. Next up on psychiatry today, a new study finds that extreme beliefs are often mistaken for insanity, and researchers strive to use new terminology to offer a more precise definition of non-psychotic behaviors that are nonetheless extreme attitudes that lead to uh, very serious and dangerous and aberrant behaviors. They uh, use the example of a mass murderer to illustrate this point. In the aftermath of violent acts, such as mass shootings, many people assume mental illness is the cause. After studying the 2011 case of Norwegian mass murderer Anders Breivik, University of Missouri School of Medicine researchers are suggesting a new forensic term to classify non-psychotic behaviors that leads to criminal acts of violence. When these types of tragedies occur, we question the reason behind them. Sometimes people think that violent actions must be the byproduct of psychotic mental illness, but this is not always the case. I think it's a natural assumption when someone commits a mass murder of innocent people, it's quite a natural assumption that this person is insane, at least, and possibly psychotic. Now, this study of the Brevik case was meant to explain how extreme beliefs can be mistaken for psychosis and to suggest a new legal term that clearly defines 
this behavior. Breivik was a Norwegian terrorist. He killed 77 people on July 22, 2011, in a car bombing in Oslo, Norway, and then in a mass shooting at a youth camp on the island of Utøya in Norway, claiming to be a Knights Templar and a savior of Christianity, Breivik stated that the purpose of the attacks was to save Europe from multiculturalism. Uh, now, when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little more about his case, uh, what the researchers are trying to propose in terms of looking at crimes uh, like this in a different way, and also how it's applicable beyond the arena of psychiatry and the law. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about some researchers at the University of Missouri-Columbia who are trying to change the way we conceptualize the attitudes and behavior of those with extreme beliefs who commit terrible acts uh, yet should not be considered psychotic. Uh, they're using the example of uh, <clears throat> Andres Breivik, who committed a mass shooting in Norway five years ago. Two teams of court-appointed forensic psychiatrists later examined him Uh, Forensic psychiatry is that branch of our field 
that deals with the criminally mentally ill. The first psychiatric team diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. However, after widespread criticism, a second team concluded that Breivik was not psychotic and diagnosed him with narcissistic personality disorder. Breivik was sentenced to 21 years in prison. Breivik believed that killing innocent people was justifiable, which seems irrational and psychotic. However, some people without psychotic mental illness feel so strongly about their beliefs that they take extreme actions. Current clinical guides, such as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, currently in the fifth edition, offer vague descriptions of alternative reasons a person may commit such crimes. The suggested term for criminally violent behavior when psychosis can be ruled out is, quote, extreme overvalued belief, unquote. Now, I can recall at the time when the Brevik murder uh, took place that he strongly protested against any characterization of himself as insane and uh, did not want there to be any uh, use of an insanity-type defense in his trial. Uh, he maintained throughout that he was perfectly sane. And so for the first team of psychiatrists to examine him and conclude that he had paranoid schizophrenia, in order to be diagnosed with that, he would have had to have been demonstrating paranoid delusions and most likely been suffering with hallucinations, uh, hearing or seeing things that weren't really there. But really, uh, that belied the characterizations of Brevik throughout the investigation and the trial. Um, the tragedy of it is he was uh, a bright man and uh, seemed very articulate. So it, doesn't, it did not come as any surprise that another forensic psychiatric team concluded, look, this man isn't psychotic, he's got a personality disorder, and he thinks uh, his beliefs justify his behaviors. And that, I think, is a more consistent diagnosis with what happened. He wasn't delusional, he wasn't hallucinating, wasn't responding to voices uh, or delusions in terms of committing these murders, as we've heard in other uh, crimes committed by mentally ill people in, this, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, he just had these very strongly held personal beliefs, which he felt justified his behavior. Hence the concept the authors of the study promote called extreme overvalued belief. Now, this is not exactly a, a new concept. Uh, there's always been a distinction in psychiatry between what you could call a delusion and what you could call an overvalued idea. Uh, the difference being a delusion is something that clearly has no basis in reality and is not likely in any reality, whereas an overvalued idea doesn't quite meet that threshold of either being clearly out of touch with reality or being impossible. It's 
just an extremely strongly held belief that guides behavior, uh, but doesn't meet the criteria of uh, loss of uh, reality testing or loss of being in touch with reality. Now, one of the researchers for this uh, article about the study defined the extreme overvalued belief as a belief that is shared by others and often relished, amplified, and defended by the accused. The individual has an intense emotional commitment to
the least bit psychotic have these extremely strong beliefs which they feel justify their behavior. They will even cite verses uh, in their religious texts which justify, even though more moderate and more mainstream uh, clerics in their faith uh, clearly state that uh, they're misinterpreting these texts. Uh, and then another example, we are currently in the midst of presidential campaign. Uh, one party has finished uh, their primaries, essentially, and a candidate has emerged. Another party uh, is continuing to have uh, primary contests. And political uh, ideology is another good example of this idea of strongly held beliefs that can dictate, if not violent, certainly extreme behavior. And in Washington, so little seems to get done because the ideology is so firmly entrenched on both sides that they spend more time digging in and holding to their very strong beliefs than they do actually trying to find middle ground, compromising, and getting anything done. Uh, so, in a sense, we're all a victim of this type of problem, even if uh, we're not talking about mass murders or terrorist attacks. Uh, it's something we come across uh, every day, uh, uh, especially in political discourse. Well, so there you have it, the idea of the extreme overvalued belief uh, when looking at the motives behind crimes and uh, not blaming them on mental illness. An important point to make. Next up on Psychiatry Today, you know I talk a lot about the effect of antidepressants in pregnancy and nursing and the effect on the, the uh, newborn and the child later in life, always bringing you updates on studies like that. Uh, but I, I think on many occasions I've talked about the importance of treating pregnant women for their depression to alleviate their suffering, but also to prevent negative outcomes uh, for the fetus and the infant from their mother being depressed. But here is a study that shows depression lowers a woman's chances of becoming pregnant in the first place, which also is something that was fairly obvious and fairly well known, uh, and I think should be brought up in any discussion of the concerns about using antidepressants in pregnancy. Not only is a woman who's depressed going to have trouble carrying a fetus to term successfully, and, uh, you know, having appropriate mother-infant bonding after the child is born, but it's going to have a negative impact on her ability to conceive in the first place. We'll have that and more mental health news after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They are located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, Suite 216 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news. Depression lowers women's chances of pregnancy, according to a new study from the Boston University Medical Center. Women with severe depressive symptoms have a decreased chance of becoming pregnant, while the use of psychiatric medications do not appear to harm fertility. The study was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, found a 38% decrease in the average probability of conception in a given menstrual cycle among women who reported severe depressive symptoms compared to those with no or low symptoms. The results were similar regardless of whether the women were on psychiatric medications or not. Despite associations in prior studies between infertility and the use of antidepressants, antipsychotics, or mood stabilizers among already infertile women, the current use of psychiatric medications did not appear to harm the probability of conception. The findings suggest that moderate to severe depressive symptoms, regardless of current psychiatric medication treatment, may delay conception. Although the study does not answer why women with more depressive symptoms 
may take longer to become pregnant, the authors noted several potential mechanisms for future study. Depression has been associated with dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which may influence the menstrual cycle and affect the ability to conceive. Now, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or the HPA axis for short, is the key hormonal pathway that regulates almost all bodily functions. The hypothalamus secretes uh, hormone signals to the pituitary gland, uh, which is then triggered to secrete other hormonal signals to the adrenal gland, and this affects every bodily process, uh, including reproductive uh, hormone levels. Now, data from the study came from more than 2,100 female pregnancy planners, ages 21 to 45 years, enrolled in a Boston University study known as PRESTO, which stands for Pregnancy Study Online, that is looking at factors influencing fertility. The participants were asked to report their current depressive symptoms and psychiatric medication use, among many other factors. Overall, 22% reported a clinical diagnosis of depression in their medical histories, while 17.2% were former users of psychiatric medication and 10.3% were current users of psychiatric medication. Among the study's secondary findings was that current use of benzodiazepines, these are sedatives used to treat anxiety and other disorders, that's things like Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, Librium, Cirax, and others, use of those drugs was associated with a decrease in fertility. Also, women who were formerly treated with a class of antidepressants known as SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that includes Prozac, Paxil, Luvox, Zoloft, Selexa, and Lexapro, these women had improved chances of conception regardless of depressive symptom severity. The authors speculated that former SSRI users could experience some long-term psychological or neurobiological benefits from past treatment with those medications that influences fertility in a positive way. However, the numbers of individual classes of medications were small, limiting the ability to make firm recommendations, and more study is needed. However, I think even though the data are limited, it is reassuring to know that the only signal they did find was a trend toward that if the women had ever taken an SSRI medication as a treatment for depression, they actually had a greater chance at being able to successfully become pregnant. 
An estimated 10 to 15 percent of couples in the United States experience infertility. Women have a higher prevalence of depressive and anxiety disorders during their childbearing years than during other times of life, according to past research. That would explain why this is such a prevalent problem. Hopefully, when women talk to their OBGYN, or if they go to a specialty infertility clinic, they would be appropriately and properly screened for depression, and they would receive appropriate recommendations for getting treatment of their depression, including being、uh, having having all the options explained to them, whether that's just counseling or psychotherapy alone, or whether that might also include antidepressant medication. In either case,、uh, according to the findings of this study, it would mean their、uh, chances of being able to get pregnant would improve. Next up on psychiatry today, we're going to stick with looking at research about antidepressants, but this article is looking at how they are often prescribed for uses other than what they were intended for. Uh, so it turns out, and this is not news, but、uh, the researchers are taking a detailed look at it, that antidepressants are commonly and increasingly being prescribed for indications other than for depression. Now, also, it, it should be made clear, and the article does mention this, as we'll see shortly, that antidepressants are specifically approved to, to treat. Many other conditions besides depression. So not all of this prescribing outside using it for depression is inappropriate. In a study appearing in the May 24 and 31 edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers analyzed treatment indications for antidepressants and assessed trends in antidepressant prescribing for depression. Antidepressant use in the United States has increased over the last two decades. A suspected reason for this trend is that primary care physicians are increasingly prescribing antidepressants for non-depressive indications, including unapproved or off-label indications that have not been evaluated by regulatory agencies. Such as the Food and Drug Administration.、Uh, the term "off-label" means this is not an officially approved use of the drug. The label is what is approved by the FDA, and it includes all the prescribing information for a given medication.、Um, it's that tiny piece of paper that's folded up about ten times and contains print barely big enough to read. And even if you could read it, the language is highly technical and unfathomable in most cases. So that's the label, and contained in there is okay. Well, what is this medication for? What does the Food and Drug Administration say this medication is approved to treat?、Uh, those are the approved indications. There are non-approved indications, which are also called off-label.、Uh, doctors may prescribe a medication. For any use that they see fit. However, if they are prescribing 
any medication, not just antidepressants, for an off-label indication, it's incumbent upon them to make sure there is at least broad consensus within their field of medicine that this is uh, an agreed-upon appropriate treatment, uh, an agreed-upon appropriate treatment for the medication, preferably backed up by scientific research, even though uh, it was never approved by the FDA. And it also is incumbent upon them to disclose to the patient in a transparent and easily understandable way that, well, I just need to let you know I'm giving you this medication, which I think will help treat your symptoms and help get you better, but this is not an officially approved use of the drug and just want to explain why I'm doing this, what are the risks and benefits of this treatment as, as opposed to others, and uh, document that the patient understands this in their medical record. Now, for this study, researchers used data from an electronic medical record and prescribing system that has been used by primary care physicians in community-based fee-for-service practices around two major urban centers in Quebec, Canada. The study included prescriptions written for adults between January 2006 and September 2015 for all antidepressants except monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Uh, those are very rarely used anymore. Hardly anyone takes them, and uh, you know they're they're uh, very dangerous, very toxic. People have to be on a special uh, diet and avoid a whole laundry list of prescription and over-the-counter medicines if they're taking them. So. Uh, I think for all those reasons, it was appropriate to exclude them from the analysis. Physicians participating in the study had to document at least one treatment indication per prescription using a drop-down menu containing a list of indications or by typing the indication by hand. Keep in mind, this is data from an electronic health record system. During the study period, 101,759,000 antidepressant prescriptions, that was 6% of all prescriptions during that period, were written by 158 physicians for 19,734 patients. Only 55%, a little more than half of the antidepressant prescriptions, were indicated for depression. Only a little more than half. Well, we're going to take another commercial break right here. When we come back, we'll talk about what else the antidepressants were prescribed for, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or 
give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, looking at a study showing that antidepressants are widely prescribed for purposes other than what they're intended for. Now, it turns out a little more than half of antidepressants are prescribed to treat depression, at least according to this one Canadian study. So let's look at what else doctors prescribe them for. They were also prescribed for anxiety disorders. 18.5% of antidepressants were prescribed for that, which is perfectly legitimate. I know it's confusing to a lot of people, but antidepressants are also approved to treat anxiety disorders. The term, the name antidepressant uh, is misleading. It implies that that's all of those, that's all that those medications do. And this uh, presents a lot of confusion and some degree of consternation for patients when they go to see a doctor for help with anxiety and the doctor gives them what they think is only a treatment for depression. So I always make it a point to explain to patients who only have anxiety disorders and do not suffer from depression that the medications are multipurpose, they're versatile, and they are perfectly appropriate for the treatment of anxiety as they are for the treatment of depression. The term antidepressant really is unfortunate, uh, <clears throat> but it's a well-entrenched piece of terminology and would be very difficult to change it after being used basically since the mid-1950s. Um, a lot of people in the mental health field and in psychiatry in particular advocate the term thymoleptics, um, meaning, you know, thymo refers to state of mood, um, and, and that would be a way of saying, okay, these medicines are to help improve mood, and that would subsume a lot of different types of symptoms. 
So anyway, 18.5% of antidepressants were for anxiety. 10% were prescribed to treat insomnia. Okay, now that may sound unusual. Why would antidepressants be prescribed to treat insomnia? Well, although none of them are approved to treat insomnia, a few of them are very sedating, and they would be expected to promote better sleep for that reason. In fact, several of them are known to promote better sleep uh, and are sedating. So if people are struggling with insomnia, prescribing a sedating antidepressant to treat that insomnia is certainly a safer option than prescribing sedatives or sleeping pills, which we know are extremely addictive and extremely dangerous and have very uh, severe side effect profiles. So while that's not an officially approved use of the drug, it's widely accepted and uh, considered the standard of care in medical practice. Common examples of antidepressants used to treat insomnia would include trazodone and remeron. Uh, now, <clears throat> I should have said before when we were talking about prescribing antidepressants for anxiety disorders that all but a handful of antidepressants are approved for the treatment of both depression and anxiety. Um, it's easier to tell you what the exceptions are, uh, but you can pretty much take it for granted that any antidepressant will also successfully treat anxiety with the possible few exceptions. Wellbutrin never approved for the treatment of anxiety of any type is not considered an appropriate treatment at all for a treatment of uh, an anxiety disorder. However, I would say that it gets an unfair reputation as a medication that would be expected to aggravate an anxiety disorder or cause anxiety symptoms. Uh, that's actually the exception, not the rule. So, uh, but nonetheless, Wellbutrin stands out as the strongest example of an antidepressant that's not at all appropriate for the treatment of anxiety. Now, several newer antidepressants probably would be helpful for anxiety based on the fact that they work in the brain similarly to older antidepressants, which also are approved for the treatment of anxiety as well as depression, but as yet, their manufacturers have not sought out or they have not yet obtained Food and Drug Administration approval uh, for use of these medications in the treatment of anxiety disorders. I'm talking about Vibrid, Fetsima, and Brintelix. It's quite likely that in the future, uh, one or more of those will be approved for the treatment of anxiety disorders, but as yet, they are not. Now, uh, pain was a reason that antidepressants were prescribed at least 6% of the time. <clears throat> now, this is not at all unusual. You have one antidepressant, Cymbalta, which is specifically FDA-approved to treat several types of pain, um, including diabetic peripheral neuropathy, pain, and pain from osteoarthritis, and chronic lower back pain. 
so those are officially sanctioned uses of at least one antidepressant, Cymbalta. Now, in the old days, doctors used to use Elevil to treat peripheral neuropathy, and sometimes still do. This was never an approved use of the drug, but something that is widely done in medical practice and is accepted as appropriate treatment by broad consensus. Uh, Elevil is more often known by the generic chemical name amitriptyline. So 6% of antidepressants for pain. Panic disorders were the reason given for prescribing antidepressants in 4%. Now, panic disorders specifically are an an approved indication of uh, Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft, and Effexor. Uh, I believe those are the only ones that are specifically FDA-approved to treat panic disorder, but certainly there are several other drugs which work similarly to those that you would also expect to be effective in the treatment of panic disorder. I was quite taken aback to see the percentage of uh, panic disorder among all the antidepressant prescriptions being so low, only 4%. Uh, panic disorder is, is actually more prevalent in most populations, and I would assume Canada to be similar. It's more prevalent than depression. Uh, so to me, that being the least cited example of why the antidepressants were being prescribed is, is a surprise. So for 29% of all antidepressant prescriptions... of prescriptions not for depression. Physicians prescribed a drug for an off-label, non-approved indication, especially insomnia and pain. Physicians also prescribed antidepressants for several indications that were off-label for all antidepressants, including migraine headache. Well, you know, I think... That's certainly quite a bit uh, less justification. Um, Antidepressants really should not be expected to treat or prevent migraines. What I would say about using them in patients who suffer from migraines is that it is so common, so typical, that a sufferer of migraine headaches also has depression or anxiety that by alleviating those symptoms, it would Uh, prevent the migraines from being as frequent or severe or as disabling. Uh, Another reason the antidepressants were prescribed was the vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Uh, In other words, hot flashes. Now, this is something that's been written about quite a bit with Effexor. Many, many studies have been done on this, and a lot of doctors prescribe it for hot flashes based on anecdotal evidence, not really hard evidence based on the gold standard of medical research, the classic double-blind study, the drug in question head-to-head versus a placebo. Uh, but nonetheless, there was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about using antidepressants to treat menopausal symptoms, especially since all the horrible news coming out of the Women's Health Initiative, documenting the dangers of long-term use 
of hormone replacement therapy to treat menopausal symptoms. And then another reason the doctors prescribed antidepressants was attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And that may be surprising to you, but basically I can boil this down to one medication, period, Welbutrin. Um, it is the only antidepressant of all of them that has any credibility in the treatment of ADHD. So hopefully that's the one that the doctors were using for ADHD because none of the others would help whatsoever. Uh, it turns out that very, very early in its life cycle, Welbutrin was studied as a treatment for ADHD. The studies were very small and they were brief and they would never have been sufficient enough to bring to the FDA to say, hey, we want to see if you'll approve our drug as a treatment for ADHD. However, they were done and it worked. Uh, Wilbertrin was studied in children, in adolescents, in adults, head-to-head against an inert placebo, head-to-head against Ritalin, a very effective ADHD treatment. And in any case they looked at it, it worked. Of course, it doesn't start working as quickly as Ritalin or Adderall. Since it's an antidepressant, it takes a while to work. Uh, but I think if we're just talking about Welbutrin, and the article doesn't specify, then I, I do consider that legitimate. And lastly, and interestingly, digestive system disorders. Now, they don't specify what that means. Perhaps it means irritable bowel syndrome, perhaps it means ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, uh, or just reflux. Uh, but I also consider this a legitimate use of antidepressants. We know there are so many direct connections between the brain and the gut. So if you're anxious and depressed, it's going to aggravate any and all of those digestive disorders. So that makes sense. So in conclusion, the authors say that the mere presence of an antidepressant prescription is a poor proxy for depression treatment and highlights the need to evaluate the evidence supporting off-label antidepressant use. If you're not sure why you're being given something, ask your doctor. Got to wrap up tonight's show quick. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week till we get together next time. If not, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.